It is reported that up to a fifth of bipolar disorder patients will suicide. Yet there are few studies looking at clinical risk factors in this population. What is the latest research? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Roger McIntyre. Dr. McIntyre is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto, and he heads the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network in Toronto. Welcome to ReachMD, Roger. Leslie, thanks for having me. Roger, what do we know about risk factors for completed suicide in bipolar patients? There's been a a large body of evidence that has documented many sociodemographic clinical and treatment factors that affect suicidality in bipolar disorder. What emerges from that literature, in fact, what surrounds it entirely, are a couple of key messages, and that is, is that suicidality in bipolar disorder is often presaged by depressive symptoms, and usually depressive symptoms that have been mixed with agitation and anxiety. A second message that I think is important to highlight is that we're learning that medical comorbidity, obesity, overweight, diabetes, also increases the risk for suicidality in individuals with bipolar, and that's a relatively new finding. The third of three comments in response, Leslie, is that we often think about suicide as a behavior, obviously a very destructive behavior, in response to proximal stressors, the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, in you know, the last month or two, and indeed that's inexorably true. We're also learning that distal stressors, in other words, childhood adversity, trauma, abuse, and so on, may set a very unfortunate groundwork that leads to maladaptive behavior, i.e. suicidality, as an adult, and that was really the focus of our work. Now, you've been interested in the effects of stress inflicted in childhood. Tell us about that. I've been particularly struck over the years with meeting individuals who have bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder and how often they report a history of maltreatment. And I think there's been a compelling, unequivocal body of evidence that links these types of unfortunate experiences to suicide, not just ideation, not just attempt, but completion as an adult. I think what's particularly interesting from the research perspective is trying to parse out what is the link. I think we can certainly begin to hypothesize around areas of psychological risks that are inherent with being exposed to abuse. I think there's been a a body of literature that has really grown remarkably only the last five to seven years that documents interesting neurobiological changes that occurs in individuals who've been exposed to trauma as children or during critical periods of development. For example, we now know that during critical periods of development, when you know, all of us are developing our ability to really respond to stress in an appropriate and adaptive fashion, which really in biological terms, meaning issues around cortisol, issues around immune activation or inflammatory activation, and the autonomic response in individuals who are developing, if you're exposed to a so-called environmental pathogenic experience, that may disrupt permanently some of those response patterns. And a lot of these types of biological processes and sub-processes remain largely, if you can say it this way, in quietude. They're silent. And they're only activated downstream at 20, 25, 30 years old when a person is exposed to a traumatic experience. It reawakens this maladaptive pattern and often overwhelms the person's homeostatic abilities leading to these types of chaotic behaviors. Tell us about the papers you've published on this. One of the papers we published on this was some work from our clinic, wherein what we did was we looked at the first 1,000 patients who came to our clinic. 
And these were individuals who were consecutive referrals to a tertiary university-based mood disorders program. Half the referrals are from primary care providers and half are from specialty providers in the community. And so it's almost about a 50-50 split. And what we found was, is, and this coheres with other investigators, is that the rate of trauma as a child, these are adult patients over the age of 18 up until the age of 65, and as children, they historically would often report during an anamnestic inquiry a high rate of childhood maltreatment. In fact, we had rates of between 20 and 40%, depending on which type of abuse we're talking about, is it physical, sexual, emotional, and also neglect is a very, very common phenomenon. And I think what we've learned from the abuse literature, if I can call it that, in the last decade is that not all abuse is created equal. And I think that there's been a thought that, for example, emotional abuse is really not as toxic as other forms of abuse. We're learning that's probably not the case, that there are indeed a high level of toxicity associated with emotional abuse. So we found very high rates. Again, that's a, an addition to what we've already known. What we then did is we looked at current and more recent and past histories of self-harm behaviors um, in the usual way we would define it and with unequivocal description of what a self-harm is. As you know, in psychiatry, there's a thin line between what is truly suicide and what some used to refer to as parasuicide or, or behaviors that are not intended to destroy life but are intended to either alleviate distress or to seek out help or a whole long list of other rationales and reasons behind the behavior. So we're talking serious suicide attempts. And what we found was is that adults, yeah, they had very high rates of suicidality as a term, but specifically high rates of self-harm in terms of shooting themselves, hanging themselves, and surviving it remarkably. This is a large urban center in Toronto. We have a subway system. People have jumped in front of subways and survived. I mean, these are unequivocal self-harm attempts. And we found that the individuals who have bipolar disorder and depressive disorder, but particularly pronounced in bipolar disorder, who in fact reported such unfortunate events also were the individuals who all reported childhood adversity. And we found the relationship worked both ways. Now, when you're looking at these types of relationships, there are many types of variables that could possibly confound the association. Economics, there's a host of issues around course of illness. People, for example, who attempt suicide tend to have a much more severe course, and that may be actually more of the explanatory variable rather than the distal stressor of abuse. And we did as best as we could to control for some of these more obvious confounding factors. And remarkably is that there's been relatively few studies that have looked at the relationship between suicide and bipolar disorder as a function of childhood adversity. And we hope to, if you will, sort of issue a clarion call to clinicians to pay closer attention to that in evaluating risky patients. If you're new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Roger McIntyre. We are discussing the effects of childhood abuse on eventual adult bipolar disorder and self-destructive behavior. Roger, did you see a gender difference in your study? There was a suggestion in our study that men who are exposed to childhood adversity may be if you will, at a higher risk when compared to their female counterparts if they're exposed to childhood trauma. And I don't want to overstate that, that finding. It was a suggestion. But when we carried out a host of multivariate analysis, the strength of that association was diminished considerably. So I think that there's been a lot of literature that has documented that women are more likely to attempt suicide, men are more likely to complete suicide, and most of these folks have bipolar or major depression. We've done 
relatively few studies looking at this gender, or I guess more specifically sex relationship, male-female, with this. So our look was very preliminary, and there was a suggestion that men were more at risk, but I think it still remains an open question. How about the type of abuse, whether it was physical or sexual or emotional? Did that make a difference? It seemed as though in our analysis that individuals who had been exposed to sexual trauma, particularly sexual trauma that had been perpetrated by a first-degree family member, a father, a brother, a mother, things like that, they were particularly disadvantaged. And those individuals were particularly at risk. And so I said earlier that there's been, you know, not all abuse is created equal in terms of its toxic effect on the individual. And there are several lines of evidence that do suggest that sexual abuse may be particularly toxic particularly when perpetrated by uh, what should be our safety objects, that is, our first-degree relatives in our lives. I think it has a particularly detrimental effect, not only to psychological aspects, but there's a whole host of family dysfunctional aspects that are implicated by that type of behavior as well. And what's your best guess as to the causal pathway here? Well, my hypothesis is is that beyond, I think, you know, well-established associations between trauma and negativistic cognitive you know, outcomes in terms of negative schema cognitively, I think that literature is very compelling. I would put forth an additional, these are not rival but hypothesis, but an additional hypothesis that individuals with bipolar disorder, in addition to having this innate propensity to disturbances in affective processing and affective perception, this environmental pathogenic exposure then I think further disrupts the neural systems that underlie or subserve stress management, coping with stress, and general affective and cognitive processing abilities and perceptual abilities. And so, in short, we're organizing this neurobiology in a very detrimental way for the individual so that downstream, they're left so terribly disadvantaged. And so when faced with terrible trauma, they react in the most maladaptive ways. Are there treatment implications here that we can learn? I think that the sort of direct instruction to me as a clinician from this work that we did was when I, in fact, assess a patient with bipolar disorder, my practice is in the adult population, you know, we haven't typically thought about childhood adversity linking it to suicidality for the risk in the here and now. And although we do take a history of childhood trauma in all of our patients, we haven't typically made drawn that line as close to adult suicidality as we now do with this type of work. And similar research has been published by other colleagues at NIH, for example. There's been similar work that's had similar findings. So when assessing my patient who has bipolar disorder, key issues are around depression, around depressive symptoms admixed with agitation. And we make a strong point of trying to sort out some of the factors around these abuse experiences and trying to understand what they mean for patients. I think one of the criticisms that I have of some of this literature in suicidality is we have many, many, many factors that are associated with suicide, but what's their predictive value? What's the net predictive value? And I think that really is the clarion call to us in research to further characterize how predictive is this. It's one thing to be associated, but really in sort of mathematical terms, how much weight does it actually have? And I think that's what we're going to need to try and look at in some of the databases that we're currently analyzing. If we think about the neurobiology of this, any hints as to what or not a medication might do for these folks? Interesting question. You know, there's been a body of evidence now that's existed for a number of years that of the various agents that we employ in the management of bipolar disorder, treating bipolar disorder, lithium has surfaced as one agent that appears to lower not only overall suicide completion rates, but what's interesting is it also seems to reduce the lethality of the method chosen by the individual. 
and there's been some contradictory data on that of recent, but there's been a number of papers that I think give us some confidence in saying that this may be a real effect. Beyond lithium, we don't really know if any other sort of, in quotes, bipolar medications, end of quotes, are actually anti-suicidal. There's, of course, as you know, clozapine was looked at in primarily psychotic patients with a beneficial effect on suicidality. But I think that is a key issue, and that is, is can we determine an anti-suicide effect with some of these agents? As you know, clinical trial design will never allow us to enroll those types of patients, at least in terms of pivotal trials, but we hope epidemiological studies may shed some more light. Well, thank you so much for enlightening us on this today, Roger. Thanks, Leslie, for having me. I really appreciate it. We've been speaking with psychiatrist Dr. Roger McIntyre about the relationship between childhood abuse and suicidality in adult bipolar patients. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcasts, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. For comments and questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.